ups and downs. Definitely try and see the positives in, in all of this and make the most of, of, of the time that it's kind of given uh, me to just rethink about what's, I guess, is important and 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 what you think about food and, and the way that you want to push that going forward is I think it's is definitely changed for me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It's been a turbulent 12 months, but it has also been one of innovation, adaptability and change as professionals have been afforded the time to plan and rethink what they're doing. That moment to breathe has resulted in some pretty incredible new business models, direction shifts and new avenues too. Will it create a period of positive change? Dave Verhill is the co-owner and chef of Embler and the owner of Saison Vermouth. Dave, how are you going? Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And you've had a pretty interesting 12 months in uh, Melbourne, a little bit tougher than uh, the rest of Australia, but you've been doing some pretty uh, interesting things uh, to the side of the restaurant. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, looking back this time a year ago, it was you know what what we all went through was was nothing that you could ever really imagine or you know or no amount of foresight would would ever see kind of coming so yeah it's been a been a bloody crazy year um a lot of great things to come out of it and a lot of interesting things so yeah i mean we we managed to do takeaway food for you know just over 7 months in total out of last year from Embla, which is mind blowing in itself. Um, yeah, we started uh, we started a rooftop bar at the end of that, and then we uh, my 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 partner, my fiance, and I started a, a little booze uh, project as well. So, was was the booze project um, the vermouth? Was that something that you'd been thinking about for years, or is this as a result of sort of what's happened in the last year? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been kind of boiling away in the background for, for quite some time now. I mean, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. It's kind of, yeah, a little, has been a hobby of mine for a long time. Um, we've been kind of making making things in the restaurant uh, with the idea of, of pairing them with certain dishes throughout the year. Um, and it really just kind of stemmed from, from that. Vermouth is something that's only really come to the fore in the last sort of five years in Australia, but it's still not well known by a lot of people as um, a drink. And it's so herbaceous and aromatic and there's just so many types. Can you tell us a bit about vermouth and what you're doing? Well, I mean, it's one of those things. It is, yeah, it is very niche. Uh, and, you know, unless you're really heavily into, into cocktails, you probably would not have a lot of experience with it. Um you know, some people describe it as a backbone of, of so many different cocktails. Um, but I think what is really happening in Australia and the States and, and parts of, of Europe is vermouth and, and, you know, the family of, of bitter drinks that surround vermouth. I, I, you know, having a, like a, 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 I guess, a, a, a new perspective taken on them I mean, you got guys like Mate and I here in Australia that have been breaking amazing ground and making amazing vermouth for so long, and it's such a such a product that's you know quite a way away from you know your Sanzano and your your old European 
uh, varieties, uh, sorry, vermouths. So, I mean, we, we started making it, I started making it in the restaurant, you know, three or four years ago, um, you know, started making things like making one out of cherries and the pits and the leaves and the, and the wood from the cherry tree and then pairing it with the cherry dish in, in the, in the springtime. So it kind of stemmed from that. And, you know, a lot of the direction of that came from what I like in food and I like clarity and of, you know, reasonably singular flavors and, and, and things like that. So there was, there was nothing like that in the vermouth world. A lot of them were, especially the very old uh, European varieties uh, that you get. You know, there's a lot of caramel as a sweetener and there's a lot of really heavily spice-driven things. So I wanted something that was fresher and more delicate, really easily paired with food. It wouldn't overrun. It was just nice and fresh. You drink it by itself on ice or a little bit of soda and, yeah. Well, you're a chef by trade. What's what's it been like creating vermouth? What's been the challenges involved? It's been an amazing learning curve, to be honest. Um, you know, as chefs, you're always kind of chasing, you know, flavor, like trying to find ways of, you know, finding the tastiest peach or the tastiest this and then doing, you know, whatever you can to it, preferably not too much, and, and making it shine. So it's been... A really interesting learning curve L- working working with alcohol is very different um working with um with a high you know the high percentage spirits is a really incredible way of pulling flavor out of things um so yeah it's been and just learning new skills and 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 just gaining different you know new knowledge so i, th- I think you get to certain points in, in your career where you know while you're still push to learn there's there's few and far between where you learn large chunks of a new skill or new things so i think in that way it's been it's been really great and, and going through that process of of learning how to do this in a commercial sense rather than kind of making <laughs> five five liters in the back of your kitchen is um <laughs> you know probably kept, kept my brain alive for for you know most of last winter when we were cooking food and putting it into into cardboard boxes and putting it in bags it's a bit hard to fathom you know what sort of happened over the last 12 months and to think that you know something like embla which is you know a natural wine bar that's got food sort of cooked over um over fire essentially you know and to be resorted to takeaway uh, you're situated in cbd what, what were the challenges involved in trying to execute that well you know I mean, everyone's in the same boat going into that first lockdown. And for us, like everyone else, it was just, it was such a moving target of mixed messaging from, from, you know, local government and and national government. And and you know what? You can't blame them. I mean, no one's been through this before and we were kind of doing our best, but, you know, we didn't know what, you know, how we were going to pivot the business initially. Uh, You know, everyone got told to work from home and, and and but we got told to stay open, so we're right in the middle of the, you know, the city. It's the heart of the business district, and there's no no one around. And we're trying to think, you know, how the hell are we going to do takeaway here? There is no one here to pick it up. So, you know, it took us a couple of weeks to figure out what we were going to do. You know, much, so much of the essence of what Embla is isn't down to 
the food or the wine or the service. It's really kind of comes down to just the atmosphere and the energy that the whole place has together. And it's kind of a culmination of, of, of everything. So, you know, we, we eventually landed on, on doing kind of, you know, date night kind of occasion packs where we'd do maybe five or six dishes that you could cook really easily. If you'd had a couple of glasses of Chardonnay and you could do it, you could do it with one hand and have some fun with it. So yeah. Yeah. It took us a little while. I mean, one of the, one of the issues that we have is when you, when you're working where most you know, 90% of your menu comes out of a 500 degree wood oven, you know, you, you really need to eat that in, in 15 minutes or it's completely gone. So you're getting that to translate into something that could be reheated in a, you know, a fan force 200 degree oven at home and still be reasonably true to what we do and what we put forward um, was an issue. I think we got there in the end. And I think, you know, over the course of the, of that seven month um, period, uh, we, we spread you know, so much further than our amazing customer base that we already have. So we, I think we we're pretty lucky. We had a lot of people that were really kind of engaged in it. We had so many people that did it every single week, which is amazing. And, you know, we, yeah, we're pretty thankful for the response that we had from that. I mean, so many, we, we wouldn't be here if, if we hadn't had the support from, from our customers that we did. I've experienced your food in uh, a couple of different venues and it, your food isn't the sort of food that you can cook with one hand. Um, it's, it's a bit more intricate than that. Uh, how did you go about, you know, creating a menu that, you know, so that someone can replicate at home because it certainly wouldn't be the food you would normally offer in somewhere like Embla? Yeah, I don't know. I think my food's changed a lot in the, in, in the years that have been in Australia. Um, it's calmed down a bit, I'd probably say. But um, we based the takeaway menus and that the style of of what we were doing that offering uh, we based it around um we've run a sunday lunches for since the start at, at embler and it's a very kind of it's a bit more of a rustic look at what we do but it's rustic and and generous and um quite approachable so yeah we ba- we based it on that i mean not everyone needs to go into the details of of you know how it, how it all works here but you you know, if you can get pretty pretty close to it and it's and it's bloody tasty at home, then that's a good spot to be in. I think one of the unfortunate things of the last twelve months is that you had to close uh, the venue upstairs, but you opened a rooftop bar and and cinema. Tell us about that sort of period of time and that decision. Yeah, well, I mean, going into the into the lockdown and and you know the having the meeting, you know that probably everyone in the industry did with, with all of their staff were, you know, it was pretty heart, heartbreaking. Um, you know, we, in the end of it, um, we really didn't lose. We only lost one or two people. We, we've reemployed everyone else. Um, and, you know, going back into trying to reopen a business with, you know, you, you're being told that you can have 10 people in a room, um, which means that we would have been, if we had to run this as, as two separate businesses, uh, restaurants, sorry, uh, there would have been 20 people in, in the building. It's just, you know, we're not coming back from that. So we we made the call to 
run Embla up and downstairs, um, which we feel has been the, the right call just to, to keep everyone on. Um, and, and that's and I think that's that's turned out really well. It's really changed how Embla works as, as a business. Um, it's given it a bit of a bit of range in the in the dining experience that you can that we have now. You know, Embla, you you would do you know two hundred and fifty people on a Friday night, and it's you know there's a lot of energy in the room downstairs, and you know people are having a good time, and it can get. You know, for all the soundproofing that you put in, it gets gets a bit rowdy. But now, you know, we can we split that, and you have upstairs, which is is really it's quite cozy. You can actually have decent, like great conversation without having to speak too loudly, and and all of that. And then you still have the energy downstairs. So that's been um that's been a quite a nice development, and and seems to be working really well. Um, with the rooftop, I mean. The building next to us is earmarked for development uh, and will be coming down mid-year and uh, there'll be a, a you know 190-room beautiful hotel going in there. Um, they're, they're in that space, oh, sorry, in the old space, there there is this super kooky 4D cinema that's been there for years. And it's one of those things where you have you sit in a chair and you have three D glasses and you know go through you go through a waterfall and get sprayed with water. It's pretty funny, but the space is amazing and it's like seventies panels. So we took we took the lease on that before all of this went you know before all of this COVID stuff went down and we with the intention of uh, putting like a kind of a gold class Embla style gold class pop up cinema cinema in there over the winter. That obviously fell through, so the opportunity came to take the rooftop for the summer, which we naturally jumped at. Um, and yeah, I installed myself on barbecue section for the summer, which has been pretty great. <laughs> Tell us about uh, Embla. I know it's changed a little bit now, but it's um, you know really become the heartbeat of a Melbourne CBD in regards to food and the real part of that new wave of dining. Um, Tell us about what you were doing there and and, and how it has changed. Oh, um, I think coming from the townhouse, I mean, I, I, I moved to Australia in 2013 to open the townhouse with Christian. Um, and I was probably pretty young as a chef at that time. You know, I was pretty aware that, you know, there were some pretty – like reasonable shoes to fill, I guess, in in that space. You know, probably you know someone who I really look up to. You know, a couple of people who I really look up to have been chefs in there over the time, and and um, you know, you want to give it a red hot crack. So, um, I probably you know things were probably had more work going into them than they needed to. But you know, you you you, you don't realize that when you're a bit younger, I guess. Um, you know, and then, you know, we were there for five years and you start, you know, realizing the things and trying to change um, and opening. It's very hard to change, I think, that greatly within an operating business where people already have a perception of what it is and what they come to expect from an experience there. So when you have an opportunity, I think, to open a completely different business, it's a really amazing chance to take a bit of a side step and go, Hey, we're going to do this. And, and that was pretty liberating for me personally. Um, 
there were a couple of dishes and, and things that we were doing at the start um, that kind of really just like drove that home. And it was just, there were a couple of dishes where, because we were working with the wood oven and the fire and all of that, and we just figured out, it was just like, you can have this and one or two components and the simplicity and is, is the beauty of it. And there are a couple of things that really changed the way the Embla kind of formed in those really early days. And then that just led into each and every other thing going forward. So yeah, I don't know what we were doing. I think if it was anything different, I think, you know, it was food that was probably more approachable than the town mouse was and, and service that was just, you know, really warm and, about having a good time and making people feel good, having a great experience. So I think it was just a combination of everything. You uh, discovered the calling for culinary life uh, over in New Zealand. Um, can you take us back to that time? What, what led to that sort of jump into the hospitality sector? Uh, I'd been looking. Uh, I've been looking for what it was that I actually wanted to do for, for quite some time. I was studying it. Uh, Tug University and not particularly enjoying it, um, you know, doing this and doing that. So uh, a friend had a restaurant um, that had, was owned by an incredibly passionate uh, Lebanese lady. And I started work there uh, and very quickly she kind of took me under her wing and she told me, uh, if you want to learn how to cook, you have to get out of Dunedin. <laughs> so she <laughs> she made me enroll in a in a, uh, in a cooking university course up in Wellington, and I moved up there a couple of months later. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a country um, that has amazing amazing produce, but it doesn't have you know the depth of restaurant culture um, that Australia does. At, uh, I think I think it's come a long way now, but you know certainly where I was from, I grew up right down south in Dunedin. I mean, you know, there's a couple of good restaurants there now. There weren't really at the time, and and it was, um, you know, just not a, a, a dining out culture like we have here. Well, that spurred you to head to Michelin star restaurants in the UK, and you ended up working at the Savoy Grill under Gordon Ramsay and Marcus Waring. What was it like working for them? Intense and amazing. Um, I remember I moved to London. I landed at seven o'clock in the morning. I went and saw Josh Emmett uh, the following day at the Savoy. He's a, he's a Kiwi. Uh, and then I trialed and started the day after that. So, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a whirlwind. I remember my first day at the Savoy, you know, doing the first service and I was on garnish and I remember just thinking, I can't understand what anyone is saying apart from the head chef. <laughs> I was so green. I was so, so like fresh out of New Zealand that I just, I couldn't understand the English people, even though they were speaking English. <laughs> it was just absolutely terrifying. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of those kitchens. It was so big and it was so busy and it was operating, you know, at a, at a Michelin star standard and you'd do 300 people for dinner and, you know, 120 for lunch. And it was, it was so intense. Um, and I, re I really fed off the energy that that kind of gave. Um, 
and I, yeah, I, I learned a hell of a lot. You ended up coming back to Australia and um, being part of, you know, the early uh, form of uh, the Bentley restaurant when it was in Surrey Hills with some chefs that have gone on to do amazing things um, under Brent Savage. Tell us about that period of time because that really set a different precedent for food in Sydney at the time. Yeah, I mean, kind of previous to that, I mean, I, I'd worked in a couple of places in New Zealand and what I really wanted to get out of moving to London and learning there was to, to find somewhere that was going to teach me, you know, traditional, you know, stock sources, basics, you know, all, all of that stuff. Um, my, my personal taste has always been for the slightly more modern, I guess. Um, and I really wanted to find somewhere in, in Sydney when I moved there to, to that was going to, fit in with where I wanted to go with that, what I was interested in. in. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the Bentley w- was that, that that time at the Bentley, the original Bentley in the era and everyone was there. It was just such an amazing period. And, you know, what we were doing was, was pretty out there, but it was, it was like, really delicious and, and, and really busy. So, um, yeah, I think it was yeah very very inform uh, like formative time for for my career and just you know learning to be creative within someone else's vision and and um, yeah I don't know it's just yeah I, I look back with heaps of fond memories on that time I mean I, I, I still count Brent as as one of my mentors I think he's you know his food is is amazingly delicious. Um, yeah, nothing but respect. What was it like in that kitchen? It was about the size of a of a the average dining table. That kitchen compared to <laughs> the kitchens in um, like the Savoy. Um, how different were those two environments to cut your teeth in? Well, I mean, you know, like we're having to walk while you're working is overrated. <laughs> it, it was a <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was a small small. Uh, small room that one i mean you don't i think you don't realize it until you kind of go back and and see again how small it was it, it seemed seemed massive at the time and what we managed to get out of there was uh was pretty incredible especially with well you know anywhere between six and eight chefs and a kitchen hand or two in there so um yeah i mean they're, they're obviously polar opposites so yeah i worked um grill section at the savoy for god almost like a year and a half and and my, my bench alone had, you know, my section alone had four target tops on it. So it was huge. It was, yeah, so quite quite the opposite. You were drawn back to, to New Zealand and um, you've done a lot of work with Christian McCabe, both in New Zealand and then since 2013, you guys have opened a few restaurants in Melbourne as well. What, tell us about that connection and when you guys first first met and worked out that you could work together. Yeah, well, I mean... I I didn't work with Christian in New Zealand. He he uh, he had recently sold a restaurant called the Matterhorn and then moved to Melbourne. And then I came in afterwards for the guys who had purchased it, bought it, and and ran that for for uh, three or so years. Um, we met each other through um, you know close friends, and and um, there was always a bit of a connection there. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot at, at the Matterhorn. It was, you know, it was my first head chef role uh, in a in a 
environment that was just incredibly busy again. And you know, I think, you know, Christian and, and the, the chef he had, had in there previously had won New Zealand, New Zealand restaurant of the year, you know, the a year or two before. So the, it was definitely one of, one of those restaurants, but it was quite an incredible place as well. I mean, there's not many places that you can actually have, you know, an amazing bar that's operating at a world-class level and, and a really good restaurant. And they're both working harmoniously. And normally, you know, you get one that takes over the other. So it was quite incredible in that regard. But, um, you know, I did, I did my, my time there and kind of came towards the end and, uh, yeah, I was just kind of looking for something else. I think something a little bit more and, and I don't think it was going to, I didn't think it was going to be in Wellington. It was just a little bit too, too small, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I've been talking to Christian and, and opportunity, opportunities come up and you, you end up in this game, you end up traveling around a bit and moving around a bit and, you know, you kind of go where the opportunities are. So this, this was a fantastic opportunity to, to form a relationship with, someone who's who's uh good at all of the things that i'm not so much um in this industry <laughs> um and and kind of yeah away away we went he, he he flew me over from new zealand to to melbourne i had a look at a absolute bombshell of a, a of a restaurant that was half demolished um that turned into the town mouse and and yeah away we went how important is that relationship that you have with christian has there been challenges over the years in delivering the same vision no i think we're i think we're pretty aligned in 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 the end result that we that we want to get i mean a lot of it is about culture a lot of it is about um just people really having a a great time and and almost like an old school sense of hospitality which i think part of we all got a little bit detached from at some point a few years ago you know, hospitality is essentially about making people feel better than when they came in, having a good time and just, you know, providing warmth and generosity. And, and he's, he's incredibly good at that. He's incredibly good at um, instilling um, that ethos and culture in um, all of the staff, front and back of house. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's I think it's been pretty good so far. You mentioned earlier that um, it's not until you've got older that you've learnt restraint on on the plate, and um, and what you're doing at Embler is really about simplicity and letting a few key ingredients shine. Tell, tell us about some of the producers that you use, and um, maybe a dish or two that you can tell us about that sort of exemplifies your cooking at the moment. Oh God, um, yeah. I mean, we've recently gone. Uh, all organic with all of our protein, all of our meat, um, which has been exciting. We're using, um, we partnered up with these guys called down here called Hagen's. Um, and they've been, uh, just a fantastic resource in, um, just kind of working, working with a product that is essentially very wasteful, um, and, and, and just trying to do that in, in the best way possible. Um, 
you know, we, we've never been really that uh, red meat heavy or centric here. We do do a little bit, but we try to, you know, what we do do is we try to, you know, put our best foot forward with that and, and pr- provide something that, um, you know, is, is ethically farmed, is, you know, is, is, is as sustainable as, as possible. Um, we, for years, uh, worked with a husband and wife team who uh, have a farm called Transition Farm down on the uh, very end of the peninsula. Um, they uh, basically contract grew for us for a long time um, and just uh, they've recently gone with, you know, they, they were entirely reliant on, on um, hospitality outfits for all of their income. So when all of this hit, they, they, I guess they pivoted into, uh, into growing for seed only, which is a, is a real shame for, for a lot of people. Um, the produce that they were, uh, or they do grow is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be on uh, the delicious produce awards panel for Victoria every year, every year. And I mean, I, I still remember the first time I ate a radish from these guys and it was, you know, a beautiful purple radish and it dripped like it was so, it had so much moisture in it that it dripped like an apple. It was just, it was absolutely insane. So um, I think we're quite lucky down here to have, you know, there's a, a really amazing handful of organic farms um, growing a lot of kind of heritage and heirloom breeds of vegetables uh, in commercial quantities. So, yeah, we, we try wherever we can to buy dra- direct from uh, farmers and farms, cut out, cut out middlemen so that they can get, you know, as, as much of that, that revenue as they can. Um, yeah. With the events of the last year and Embla changing a little bit, and now it's you know two levels. Um, what's what's your plans moving forward? I know you like to take on new things, and you've got the Vermouth brand as well. Have you have you got something in the works um, that you can tell us about? Uh, there is something in the works, but I'm not sure if we can talk about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that we're out of the weeds yet. So it's going to see see how we go. And and you know we'll we'll run it like this for a while and, and see what see what happens. I think, you know, I don't, you know we keep you know we had a, a week long snap lockdown the other week, which I think freaked a little people out, a few people out. So we'll just we'll see where it goes to first. The events of the last year have uh, impacted Victoria more than the rest of Australia. How, how has it been for you personally? Do you see? your role and your place in the industry a little bit differently? Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess, I think personally last year was a bit of a roller coaster for me. Uh, I think, you know, going into the first lockdown was absolutely heartbreaking. And then having that time to, you know, actually spend with your family is, is a pretty unique thing. So that was, that was really great. I think, you know, Coming out of that, things were really optimistic, super motivated, and then going back into the second lockdown was just a huge kick in the guts. And I think for for a lot of people in 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 Melbourne, um, it, it actually felt like we really weren't anywhere near through this yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, ups ups and downs. Definitely trying to see and. and definitely try and see the positives in, in all of this and make the most of, of, of the time that it's kind of given uh, me to 
just rethink about what's I guess is important and 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 what you think about food and and the way that you want to push that going forward is I think it's is definitely changed for me. Well, Dave, um, very much looking forward to see what you have next on the cards and um, when you can reveal it, um, please let us know. Um, we'd love having you on Deep in the Weeds today, mate, to share your story. Please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.